Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on SlopeCombat.com. I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC still in Las Vegas, still at the Apex. We're calling this UFC in Vegas 3, and we have got a great show lined up for you surrounding it. We are going to talk about our three favorite fights on that card as part of our Fights, Dogs, and Parlay section, including an exciting main event between Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. Plus, we're going to give you, as I said before, an underdog and a parlay for you guys to play and make a little money off of this weekend. But of course, before we get to that, I do have three interviews for you with fighters on the show. First, we're going to be talking about Roxanne Modafferi, who fights Lauren Murphy in a very exciting bout for the women's flyweight division. Then we'll be talking to recent UFC signee Max Roscoff, who is absolutely as exciting as you can get as far as grappling prospects. And then we're going to talk to Frank the Crane Camacho, who is bringing the chaos this weekend against Matt Frivola. So you'll have all three of those interviews, plus fights, dogs, and parlays. And you can get it starting right now. This is Daniel Gumby Vreeland with Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Roxanne Modafferi, who fights Lauren Murphy at UFC Blades versus Volkov on June 20th, live from Las Vegas. So, Roxanne, I wanted to start by asking you about your strength and conditioning, because I've noticed on your social media you've been doing a ton of strength workouts. Is that the focus because of the pandemic and that sort of limited your training, or was that something you had been planning for this fight? Uh, hi, first, thanks for having me. Um, yes, several reasons for that. So when the pandemic hit, my gym syndicate closed and I continued hitting mitts with my coach AJ in his garage and training jujitsu in the park and all that stuff. Um, but my trainer, who I usually train with, um, Lorenzo, twice a week, he said, hey, come over to my backyard. We'll train three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't really enjoy strength and conditioning, and it's hard for me to fit it in my schedule because I'd rather be doing jiu-jitsu or something like that. Um, so I was like, all right, I have no excuse. I'll go over three times a week. Um, so, yes, the increased strength and conditioning was a result of the pandemic, but also, like, you know, I was getting like hate from fans and like even teammates for leaving my apartment. They're like, you should be wearing a mask. How could you leave your apartment? Be six feet away from people at all times. Like, you know, that's what we're supposed to do anyway. So I felt comfortable posting pictures of me doing strength conditioning by myself rather than actually grappling like Dustin in the park, which ha was happening. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of like secret, you know, like that was what I was able to post. So I posted a ton of it, but I have been training a lot more lately than normal for sure. Well, that, that's good. Now, I do want to ask now, now that you are back to training a little bit more normally and, and not just covertly, uh, are, are Fight you, club. yeah, are, do you feel the difference in your strength training? Because you, I mean, like, obviously the, the benefits have probably paid off of doing an extra day of strength and conditioning. I certainly hope so. You know, everyone's telling me that I look better. I look, um, stronger, you know, I, I don't know. Like I never really wrote down the numbers, you know, how many, how, how many pounds I can lift and all that. I've always been kind of a weak fighter because I just focused on martial arts. Like I consider myself a martial artist, martial artist rather than an athlete. So, um, I feel like more so nowadays rather than feeling stronger than people, I'm just feeling not overpowered anymore. I'm feeling like I can hang with them. So I'm certainly hoping that, you know, I'll see the results in the fight. I've never lifted somebody up and be like, Hey, I can lift you up with one arm now, but you know, <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe someday. You know. 
<laughs> and maybe this is the fight to do it, too. So you're fighting Lauren Murphy. I, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about this fight because, first of all, I, I interviewed her a couple weeks ago, and she said that when she was – she was actually asking for this fight to start – she remembers watching you fight for the Strikeforce title when she was just starting out in MMA. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, which is which is awesome. And I'm sure you get this kind of stuff all the time, being such an, an OG of the sport. What does that feel like? What does it feel like when you hear your opponent, you know, grew up sort of in the sport watching you? I've only started hearing that more recently, but probably just because I've been fighting for so long now. Um my best friend Serena said that she was YouTubing my fights when she was in high school. I'm like, <laughs> all right, cool. Now I feel old now, but we're 10 years apart, so it makes sense. But <laughs> that's cool that Lauren said that. I didn't know that. But yeah, it's been like decades. Absolutely. It's an honor. It's cool to be, get that recognition. You know, some fans might, well, fans used to not know me. Now they kind of do. But, you know, my opponents never underestimated me. And I think they respect me for the most part. Absolutely. And and now a lot of respect comes with this fight, too, because some people are out there saying this could be a number one contender fight in the flyweight division. Do, do you feel that this could be the fight to get you back to that title shot? Yeah, somebody just said that online. Oh, it's a contender shot or whatever. And I don't think I was actually told that by the authorities, but, you know, whatever, I'll take that. <laughs> um, I'm really not thinking past that because I've been in that position where people have been asking me, are you going to get the title next? I'm like, yeah, but you know i have to win my fight in the first and who knows so i'm really not looking past lauren you know she's tough she's a really good opponent so i'm just psyched i'm so excited to fight her you know and, and how much of that that shooting for the title is part of your mindset right now though because you, you know like you said you're focused on lauren murphy she's a hell of an opponent but at the same time like how, how much are you is that still your game plan is that still your end goal <laughs> Dude, I don't even want to think about the title because JoJo's fighting for the title next, and I don't want to think about that scenario, that situation. Um, I'm going to help her fight for it, and I, I want her to win, you know. Um, you know, I think that's the goal of most people. You know, I've been fighting for 17 years, and I've held several titles in various organizations, never the UFC title, never Invicta, but I fought for them. And there is life after that. You know, I've lost those, actually, like, ah, oh, so close. Like, I feel like I almost got those titles um, both times like I think it was a split decision I lost the Invicta title it was close the UFC won against Nico so you know I don't know if I get the title shot cool if not I don't know I will someday but I'm not thinking about it I can't let my mind focus on the future or I get kind of anxious and nervous that, that makes sense and, and then I will definitely not ask you the question that I had queued up next for what would happen don't if JoJo it. won I won't. no no <laughs> all right so next. we'll <laughs> Let, let's move on to talking about the fight with Murphy then, because, you know, like you said, she's a tough opponent in there. You know, how, how do you see this fight playing out? Man, I think it's going to be a slugfest or maybe I'll knock her out or maybe I'll take her down. I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to have a loose game plan, be opportunistic. Like, I expected a stand and bang with Macy and then suddenly I got the body lock and I'm like, OK, we're going down. So that happened. So I don't know. Like <laughs> My game plans never happen, you know, go according to plan. And, and is that sort of game planning with with Coach John Wood and, and the coaches at Syndicate? Do you go out with a pretty set game plan? Do they form it? Or at, you know, 17 years in the sport, do they kind of let you ride that out? No, I actually suck at making game plans and analyzing stuff, ironically. Um, you know, John knows to not have such a strict game plan, but I kind of got – Man, I kind of fell into that trap a little with Jennifer Maya. I just kept trying to body lock her, and she was shorter than me, and that didn't really work out. So I have to not, like, get stuck mentally in the game plan. That's kind of, like, my downfall. So I have to not really have a huge game plan, but just know 
her tendencies pretty much. And, and is that something that you have to like train yourself to do too? Because you know, like a lot of fighters go in there with game plans and, and they, they stick to them. Do you have to train yourself not to stick to them too much or just go in with less of a game plan? Yeah, it's man. Like you pretty much said it. I can't really. Okay. With every fight, my brain becomes a little bit more clear. If that makes sense. Like if, for example, if you're learning a language, you know, you, you slowly get better at it and the world becomes less foggy and you start understanding more. That's kind of how it is with me with every fight. Like at first it's just like a blur of like punches and ah, instinct. But then over time, like with every fight, even now I feel a little bit clearer, a little bit more sharp, a little bit more mentally aware in every fight. So I think that's going to help me, you know? Um, but yeah, I try not to have a game plan because then I get stuck in it. <laughs> so if you say that it, it continues to get clearer and it's been doing that for your whole career, what was it like when you were first in the UFC or first doing MMA, when you were first starting off? Do you feel like it was just complete chaos back then? Yes. <laughs> okay. Striking, yeah. striking. So I'm better at grappling and I felt I feel more calm and composed. So once it goes to the ground, my brain switches on. But always for kickboxing, like I haven't been as good at it, you know, as grappling. So I just kind of it was kind of chaos. And how long did you feel like that, that that it was just pure chaos on the feet until, I mean, like, do you still feel that way? Um, honestly, until probably my Invicta days, like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just going out there and throwing and trying not to get hit. Um, but no, I, I remember, like, working with John a lot, John Wood, and he really, like, I plateaued with my kickboxing for so long until I met him. And, um, yeah, I was, like, in my Invicta days with him the past six, six, seven years that I started feeling more clear, like I could actually think. Um, and even now I feel way more anxious striking than I do on the ground. And here's a question. So I guess I, I don't know if there's a secret to it or if it's just that you really clicked with John Wood. Is there a reason why you feel so much more clear since working with him? Is he just giving you more tools that help you think about it? Or is it just something that clicked Yes, I'm kind of a hard student and he figured out how to communicate with me for the most part. Um, you're just adding just just the way we work together. He's just such a good coach. That makes sense. And, and why do you say just out of curiosity, do you uh, find yourself to be a hard student? Um, because I feel like for stri well, for striking and grappling, I need every little detail explained to me. Like if you say punch with your left hand I'm like okay how far do I extend my shoulder at what is it a 90 degree angle do I turn my thumb horizontal or vertical downwards like I need to know these things before I can do it and you know if, if coach says like shuffle I'm like okay well where what percentage of my weight is on my front foot like I need to know these things and the coach has to be patient enough to explain that to me or I'm gonna get frustrated and cry <laughs> um so man I've only really ever connected with John and then AJ Matthews more recently like over the past year so like I only really feel comfortable training striking with those two guys interesting interesting and do you think that your your close attention to detail has been part of the success for you in the long term I think so. And it makes me a really good teacher. Like everybody tells me I'm a really good teacher because I can explain all these things and I have like a deep understanding of it. Once I've got it, I've got it. And not that anybody's throwing around the, the retirement word at you at this point in time because you're so close to the title shot. But is that something you plan on doing more of when you're out of MMA? Do you, do you plan on being a teacher? Yeah, I think so. In some capacity. Like I love teaching kids at Syndicate. Um, 
I could probably be a school teacher, but they're underpaid and underappreciated, so we'll see about that. But um, I'll be definitely teaching something in some capacity. All right. Well, first, of course, you've got to fight Warren Murphy this upcoming weekend. Roxanne, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tune in to my fight. It's going to be awesome. And that interview with Roxanne Mataferi is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you train judo, jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, sambo, or any other art, you've got to get Maroon Social because they allow you to track your training sessions, make notes, and keep track of your progress so that you can make sure that you are meeting your goals. Plus, they've got other great features such as weighing yourself in and competitions, as well as tagging your friends and tagging different training techniques as well. So check all of those out wherever you download apps. This is Daniel Gumby-Vreeland with Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Mac Roscoff, who fights Austin Hubbard this weekend at UFC Blades vs. Volkov, live from Las Vegas. So, Max, I can tell already, based on your social media and all the stuff that you were saying, that you were ready for a potential fill-in. Obviously, you had the Contender Series coming up, which you were looking to be a part of. But give us the story. What was it like to get that phone call and finally get the word that you would be in the UFC? Uh, you know, my, uh, my manager called me like early Saturday morning. Like I literally, like his phone call woke me up and he was like, Hey, like I heard a rumor that, uh, someone might be pulling out. Um, I'm gonna let you know by the end of the day. And then I'd already had conversations with him weeks before about possibly filling in for another fight a couple of weeks ago. And I knew with all this, uh, the pandemic stuff and everything going on in the world right now, and with the fights being in Vegas, that, uh, it was going to be a good chance that I got in. So I was staying ready. Uh, to the best of my ability and you know and then after he called me and told me that he was trying to get me in I was I mean you know like I'm not I, I don't get super excited and then he uh, he told me basically it was a possibility and then he called me to actually tell me that I that I was getting in and I was going to face uh, Austin Hubbard and you know uh, he was super excited uh, all my coaches were super excited all my friends were super excited but to me um, it's not it's not my goal, right? My goal is not just to get into the UFC. My goal is to get in there, have a lot of wins, have a lot of good submission wins, you know, win some money, win some 50 Gs, uh, contend with the best guys in the world. So, like, for me, this is just a step. And if it's the highest step I take, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. So I'm not all that excited. Um, I think it, it shows the hard work I've, and stuff like that I've put in, but I'm not going to be happy unless I get the win. Well, and obviously you're very confident in your skills here, which is obviously a good thing. But, you know, with only five pro fights under your belt, and, and most of them really being within the last year, four of them basically within the last year, th that's less than 99% of the roster. What what helps you exude that confidence? What brings that confidence to you? Just training, training in the gym. Um, I, I've, I've trained. I've had the um, – I've been lucky to train with some of the best guys in the world guys who used to be uh, ch title challengers, guys who are title challengers still, uh, guys who have been uh, staple top 15 on the UFC roster for a long time, guys who are just now making it on. Um, I get to train with a lot of guys and have trained with a lot of guys that are really good. And, you know, you, can, you can't completely gauge on how good you are based off of training and in the gym, but I get a good indicator. And I know what I'm capable of. It's just a matter of uh, doing it, doing it in the octagon in front of a lot of people.
Yeah, well, and you know, you mentioned in there too that you were looking to get a lot of performance bonuses. You're looking to get submissions, you said specifically, which is interesting too because you're, you know, obviously you're a D1 wrestler. You've got the wrestling background. What what part of your game took so well to the submission side of things? Because you see a lot of wrestlers go in there, you know, look for the grounded pound, but you you have really taken to the submissions. Yeah, so my wrestling style, I made my whole I made my whole wrestling career off of like scrambling and being good on top and a lot of wrestlers it's not really that's kind of like weird in wrestling like uh a lot of guys are really good takedown throw artists stuff like that and i was really good at being on top and controlling and scrambling and doing like leg passes and side headlocks and kind of weird stuff and it's all things that kind of transitions the jiu-jitsu really well and then when i started doing jiu-jitsu I think a lot of wrestlers shy away from it because they're already really good at one grappling art and now they're going to suck at the new grappling art. So they just kind of learn how to defend it. And that's just not ever how I, how I've seen it. Um, I've had really good coaches and Sean Spangler and Robert Drysdale and guys that basically told me that, Hey, like if, if you can really take to and learn jujitsu for what it is that you're going to be able to finish guys with your wrestling. And I, I agree with them. I think the, I think the two most, I, the most dangerous combination in all of fighting is, high-level wrestling with high-level jiu-jitsu and uh yeah so i've just taken i just taken to it i I like the idea of getting on top of someone not letting them do what they want to do and making them not want to be there i i love that too and and now i'm curious too because we saw you do abu dhabi trials on flow grappling as well as you know a couple of other submission events as well how much did that play into your development as a jiu-jitsu guy or as a guy who's looking for submissions all the time Oh, huge because I, and like when I did EBI or when I did, uh, I, I lost the John Combs and, um, at the, uh, Abu Dhabi trials or whatever, or even Shuyo, there's, I learned how to compete against the best guys in the world in that discipline when it's new to me. Uh, if I can even compete with the best guys in the world in jujitsu, when, when I go in there with, against an MMA fighter who does jujitsu once or twice a week, there's going to be a huge advantage. Um, so it was the same thing with wrestling. I was trying to compete with the best guys in the world. And then in jujitsu, I'm trying to compete with the best guys in the world. And then for my striking, I try to, I try to spar with, and I have sparred with some of the best boxers and kickboxers in the world. And I think if I can do well against those guys, it's the, it's going to up my skill level for, for an MMA fight. And, you know, I think competing a lot is, um, even though I haven't had a lot of MMA fights, I've, I've competed for, since I was 12 years old, and then for the last eight years, not not six years, I've competed against the best guys in the world in jiu-jitsu and wrestling. So I think that that helps me uh, not only physically but mentally. Absolutely, and I know also that you did the Abu Dhabi trials right around 170 pounds. So obviously that's yeah. a little bit heavier too. Maybe you're doing a little bit less weight cutting because it's a lot of competitions. Was, was there any concern about making weight on a week's notice, or have you been keeping your weight down pretty far? No, I don't like to get um, big and blow up and then not have to worry about my weight. Uh, I try to, I stay at like 170 pretty much all the time. Sometimes on accident, I'll lose weight and I'll be like 165 and I don't mean to. Uh, With how much I train, it's actually really hard for me to put weight on. If I'm training two, three times a day, every day, uh, it's hard for me to put weight on that, that's interesting, too, because I'm sure, first of all, you just frustrated a lot of different fighters out there with that statement. But in addition to that, 
So do you actually have like a nutrition plan to try to keep weight and muscle mass on being as, as much as you're training? Uh, nah, I eat whatever I want. <laughs> Fast food, candy. Uh, I eat a lot of uh, Apache taco shop here in Vegas and uh, Hawaiian barbecue. I- I'm sure. And yeah, I- I'm sure every every fighter out there is jealous of what you just said. Now I'm gonna ask you too, just because now I've got you talking about candy. What do you got a favorite candy or a favorite vice that you fall into? Uh, you know, as far as sweets, I gotta go with donuts. But if it's candy specifically, I probably do Reese's Pieces. Not Reese's Pieces, but Reese's peanut butter cups, the large ones with a lot of peanut butter. Nice. Okay, so we can see you eating those fight week, even though you you're absolutely positively gonna make weight. Oh yeah, no, they were uh, they're telling me that they wanted me to uh, cut out carbs, and then they're gonna have all my meals at the hotel for me and shit. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna have to sneak some Reese's peanut butter cups in there. <laughs> well, we're certainly looking forward to uh, to more stories about that. But I do want to talk about your fight too. So obviously, you're fighting Austin Hubbard. He's a one and two guy in the UFC, so he's got some fights under his belt. What did you know about Austin Hubbard before they presented you with the name? Uh, so I, I've trained with uh, Mark Madsen, and so I've, I've been around. I was around him a little bit for his camp against Austin Hubbard, and then um, I was actually signed to LFA for a little bit when he was the champ. I never got to fight for them. But, uh, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen all of his fights. Um, I watched the Davey Ramos fight. I didn't watch the one with the guy from Canada, and then I obviously watched the Mark Madsen fight because I, I've trained with him. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's a tough, he's a tough dude. He's a gamer. He's going to show up to fight. Uh, I, I respect him and he comes from a good gym with really good coaches and some really good athletes. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned, so the fight with, with, uh, Mark Madsen, which obviously Madsen won by decision. Hubbard is a tough guy. He's a tough guy to get out of there. Do you feel like you're the one to get him out of there? You know, I think Ramos um, wasn't really looking for a submission. Uh, you could tell by watching his fight, he was going for the knockout for whatever reason. Um, a lot of these guys, when they come in as a jiu-jitsu guy or a wrestler or whatever, they fall in love with striking. Uh, and that's not me. And then um, I am more well-rounded with my submissions, and I think I've shown that. So I do think there's uh, – a much higher probability for me finishing with a submission than these other guys that he's fought. Care to give us a prediction before I let you go? What, what submission do you, uh, you imagining yourself getting here? Uh, there's about 20 of them that I'm really good at. So, uh, it's going to be whatever he gives me. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. One of those 20 submissions getting locked in this weekend. Max <laughs> Roscoff fights Austin Hubbard at Blades versus Volkov live from Las Vegas. Max, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Anytime. And that interview with Max Roscoff is brought to you by Battle Clan Gear. Visit BattleClanGear.com and make sure to use promo code TURTLEUP10. That's T-U-R-T-L-E-U-P-1-0 for 10% off all of your grappling needs. That's right. If you need new spats, you need new rash guards, things are starting to open back up. You want to look sharp when you are heading to the gym. Pick up some new duds at BattleClanGear.com. This is Daniel Gumby Freeland with Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Frank the Crank Camacho, who fights Matt Fravola at UFC Blades versus Volkov on June 20th, live from Las Vegas. So, 
Frank, I want to ask you about your approach to fighting because, you know, you had a fight of the night performance in each of your first three fights in the UFC. You followed that up with a tough loss against Jeff Neal, but, but then you come out looking much more calculated and much more technical in your next two bouts. Was this a conscious decision by you, or was this something that just seemed to happen as the fights went on? Um, I, I, I against my fight against Nick Hyde, it was kind of it was it was it was kind of cool because I did my camp after the Jeff Neal loss. I did my camp off island, you know, outside of Guam, and I did it with uh, Coach Colin Oyama. You know, if you hear him in the corner, he talks about, hey, don't brawl, don't brawl, you know. So I was kind of like trying not to fight with emotion or whatever and try to stay calculated because I, I, I have a set of tools that I never bring to the fights, you know. And I just kind of just bring grit and heart and the the island fighting spirit all the time, you know. So it was kind of cool to to um, to to use those tools and to be a little bit more calculated and and uh, against uh, Benil. Maybe I tried to come out a little too calculated where I didn't bring enough of the crank. And, and you know, he I, I gave him an inch and he took a mile. So against Matt Frivola, it's going to kind of try to find that that balance of chaos between the two, you know. I like that, too. And, and you said that, you know, that is a that's an island mentality. Do, do you feel like that that's sort of what you're bringing to the fight? Yeah, um, no, I like to I like to think of myself as a, some sort of like. You know, I'm I'm real big on the spiritual side of like you know the ancestors of the islands. You know, we come from such a small place, you know, and um, maybe it's because of that we're trying to prove big things and show the world where the beautiful place that I come from. You know, if you look at my Instagram, you know, you see just nice beaches, a lot of family time, and just the island hospitality, kind of how it is all the time. You know, so I'm just a, I'm a proud local boy, and uh, using using MMA as a vehicle, so. And for some reason, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I'm, I have no ill will in my heart. But when it comes to fighting, I, I love it, you know, like, like those, those yells in my fights. It's like, man, I'm just enjoying the moment and I'm enjoying the fights and I love it, but never, never grew up with a, with a, with an ill will, you know? So it's something, it's, it's, it's what I love about, I guess, the, the fight game. It's, um, like some sort of self-discovery for myself. I like that. Now, you, you said you grew up with no sort of ill will, but you found MMA at a really young age, right? You were like 17 years old when you took your first pro fight and maybe a, a little younger than that for amateur fights. What, what got you in from, you know, being a, you know, not an angry person from Guam into an MMA cage at such a young age? You know what I think? I think it's because there's nothing much to do on an <laughs> island. And when something you find something cool, it's like, Oh shoot, this is cool. I, I, I don't know. I love, I loved, I loved it. Like I, uh, I was so fascinated by the fact of, by the, the, I was so fascinated with problem solving. I would come to the gym and I would, it, I, and I went to the fight gym. It wasn't like, uh, like an academy where you come up and you learn classes. Like, no, it was like guys getting ready for fights. And at the time, it wasn't even called MMA. It was called NHB at the time. So it was kind of like, I would come in, and I was always the easy round. You know, I was 16 years old, 15, 16 years old, just getting beat up all the time. But I would always come back like, man, how, how do I stop getting punched in the face? Or how do I stop getting armbarred? You know what I'm saying? We, we, our instructor was a old like an old-school Shuto guy, Tetsuji Kato, under Entity doing Fought a lot to like Box Sakurai, uh, Gilbert Melendez back in the day, Anderson Silva back in the day in Valley Tudo, Japan, you know, so 
he had that very old school, um, old school mentality of training. And, uh, yeah, it was weird. Nothing much to do and just kind of freaking loved doing it and showed up every day. And next thing you know, I had my first pro fight. And then after that, I was like, wow, I want to do this stuff. <laughs> And what was the, the fight scene like in Guam, too? Because you had, you know, the bulk of your professional career in, in either Saipan or in, in Guam. What What is the, the fight atmosphere like there? The fight atmosphere, unfortunately, right now is, is kind of took a halt. The, the, the promotion, the main promotion there, PXC, Pacific Extreme Combat, they haven't had a show in years. Um, not too sure, like, what's kind of going on with that, but that's put a huge halt on the on the on the scene and the development of fighters. But we still have a lot of shows like in Australia and Hawaii and uh, uh, mainly in Japan because Japan's about three hours away via flight. So it's it's okay, but it's it's definitely taking a, a hard hit as far as the development of the of the sport. And, and how was that like when you were growing up too? Because obviously, like you're saying, it, it's come to a halt now. But what was it like when you were younger? Oh man, it was like uh so. When I was living in Saipan and all the big fights were on Guam, you know, because they had the, I guess, like the biggest like arena or stadium or whatever. It was like, it was called the U, the University of Guam Fieldhouse. It held about like 3,000 people, you know? So, man, it was, you know, on an island, man, when you have big fights and, you know, you had, we, we never really appreciated because we had guys like, Man, like Alex Volkanovsky was fighting on the car, Louis Smoka, you know, like all these guys from that that are are now making huge waves in the scene right now. But uh, it was always a big thing, you know. And and I always talk to my friends about it. Like it's kind of crazy how MMA was the only sport on the island that you had to pay to watch, and it was always a packed house. That's awesome. And, and now I I gotta ask too because there was all this talk about about Fight Island, right? And there was all this excitement around Fight Island. There's t-shirts that had, like, pictures of tropical islands on it. Were you excited and looking forward to that, hopefully being on an island like Guam or something like that? I mean, like, ultimately it winds up being in Abu Dhabi right next to their airport. But were you looking forward to maybe, you know, getting a fight on a beach? Yeah, you know, honestly, I was kind of, I was kind of, I was more so kind of curious. I was like, huh, what is this Fight Island about? You know, like... Like, you know, like I posted a photo of me climbing a coconut tree, looking out into the horizon on the beach, you know, I'm like, oh, I think I see Fight Island, but and then apparently Fight Island's on the desert, you know, so it's kind of like, oh, okay, um, hey, I'm just grateful that we have fights going on. Absolutely, and let, let's talk about your fight, too, because you're fighting Matt Favola, which is, you know, a completely different animal than, than all of your recent opponents. I feel like they keep running the gauntlet of different kind of guys at you. This is a guy with a wrestling background, you know, how do you see your grappling skills, which, you know, a lot of people don't realize you're a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. How do you see your grappling skills playing against a guy like Provola? You know, one of the things that um, Coach Colin has been trying to remind me is like, hey, man, you got good jiu-jitsu, you know, like, like, be- because you, you sometimes my approach to fights is very one dimensional. Um, I get myself in trouble, you know, like when I when I if I, if I ever get taken down or whatever. I try to get back on my feet and, and, and I, and I lack a little bit of that wrestling skill set to where my back gets taken. You know what I mean? But man, like, dude, like you have submissions on your back. You have, you have sweeps off your back. You know, don't, you know, like use the art for what it was designed for and, and the amount of time that you put into it, you know? So, um, on the grappling side, I feel like I, I am, I'm superior, more superior. 
Uh, I think Matt Frivola just puts it all together real well with a little tad bit of a lot, or not even a little tad bit. He puts his game real well together with a lot of chaos. <laughs> and, and man, like the first thing I thought about was like, these matchmakers know what they're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> because you love that chaos, right? Like that, that's the thing that you're trying to bring to this fight. So you, you feel like they, they knew what they were doing there? Oh no, for sure, for sure, and and it's and it's a fun fight for me for myself, you know. Like, uh, it's how do I, uh, you know, how how now how do I find the the calmness and the patience, but at the same time, you know, bringing the 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 Camacho heat like I like I've known to be doing, you know. Like, man, if you if you ask me to go out there and pop and move and try to play like a Mayweather style, yo, I'm gonna get eaten up alive. There's no way I can do it. You know what I mean? So it's uh it's it's kinda cool. It's a it's 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 fun. It's a fun fight for me. Like like aside from aside from the, the fans and, and me and 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 everything, as a fan myself, I like this fight for myself and it's uh it's gonna be a fun one. Awesome. And before I let you go, I do have to ask, can you give me a prediction? How do you see this one ended? Man, I see myself I see myself uh winning by a stoppage in the later rounds. Uh, or by a decision. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Frank Camacho, who fights Matt Fravola at UFC Blades versus Volkov on June 20th, live from Las Vegas. Frank, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed those interviews with Frank the Crank Camacho, Roxanne Modafferi, and Max Roshkoff. Dave, I'm really excited to first let, – let's first start talking about Max Roshkoff because – he, he's pretty new to the MMA game, but you have to be jacked up about this guy between his confidence and his skills. You're jacked up, right? Oh, gee, let me see. A D1 wrestler who decided, instead of just saying to himself, I'm good enough on the ground, I don't really need jiu-jitsu, I'll just keep working on my hands, said, I'll go the opposite way. I'm a D1 wrestler that's going to get really good at jiu-jitsu with Robert Drysdale. Uh Yeah. I'm excited, Gumby. Yeah, and, and I love that he decided to seek out, like, you know, like Robert Drysdale, one of the top jiu-jitsu coaches out there. You know, obviously there are tons of names in the jiu-jitsu world that we could talk about, but Drysdale is a really legit dude. So for him to be snatching up these submissions, doing them quickly, and not only doing them in MMA against guys who are, you know, maybe strikers or, you know, other guys who are more wrestling-based and less submission-based, he's also doing it on the jiu-jitsu circuit. He's doing it at Abu Dhabi Trials. I mean, he's he's doing it at the highest level. He, I mean, he, he tapped out Ethan Krillison, not even tapped him out, passed him out, which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what else was at a high level. That would be our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. We're pretty good at what we do. We like to give out a little gambling advice. You can love us and thank us for that advice, or you could hate on us if we did you dirty. Uh, of course, follow our show at Top Turtle MMA on Twitter. We are always tweeting during the fights, and this weekend will be no different for uh, UFC from Vegas, again, headlined <laughs> by Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. Uh, should we get right into it, Gumby? Uh, do you have anything you need to prep yourself for or say, or can we just, can we just go and ring the bell? Let's just barrel into these ones. <laughs> All right. I love it. So Curtis Blades, friend of the show is on a three fight win streak since he lost to Francis Naganu. It seems to be the one thorn in his otherwise perfect paw is Naganu. 
Uh, it's the only person, other than a no contest with Adam Milstead, that was overturned. The only person that has beat him in the UFC is Francis Ngannou. Uh, but that being said, since losing to him, he beat Justin Willis via decision. He beat Shamil Abdurakramhimov via TKO. And he beat Junior Dos Santos via TKO. And I think that's why he is a minus 310 favorite against Alexander Volkov. Volkov, on the other hand, well, he's not on a three-fight win streak. He's coming off a nice win over Greg Hardy, the unanimous decision, but he lost to Derek Lewis via KO before that, beat Fabrizio Verdum and Stefan Struve via TKO and KO before that. So he is 3-1 and one in his last four, and if you want to go back even further, he beat Timothy Johnson in his UFC debut and beat Roy Nelson on his way out of the UFC, so he is 5-1 and one in the UFC as a whole. But obviously the underdog here against Blades, you could get him at a plus 255 dog. Who you got? I've got Curtis Blades, and I got him not even close. 310 to me is a nice price for Curtis Blades here because I'm still (laughs) in on him at 310. He's a great person, as you'll find out a little bit later on the show, to put in a parlay at that kind of number. You can turn it around and turn it into plus money with somebody else who's a pretty decent dog. And the reason I like him here is if you go back and look at Alexander Volkov, yes, he's got a couple of knockouts against guys like Struve and Bordum, who are good. They're bottom of the top 15 guys right now, though, right? Like, or just outside the top 15 in the case of Struve. He hasn't really picked up a win over a meaningful opponent, right? Like, maybe his best win is Verdum. And in that fight, it was a four-round fight. And if you look back at the three rounds and it became a three-round fight, he might have lost that fight. Like, he might have been losing a decision to Fabrizio Verdum. And some of that was due to takedowns. I know that, you know, some people are are really high on Fabrizio Verdum's grappling, as am I, although it didn't look that good last time out. But the thing that he's not ever been, you know, sterling at is his ability to take people down. Yet he still took Volkov down three times. So if if Fabrizio Verdum is taking Alexander Volkov down three times, Curtis Blades is going to do it at will as many times as he wants. And you know what? To be honest, it's probably only going to take one time anyway. Who other than Naganu beats Curtis Blades? I'm going to be honest. If I was looking at the top, you know, 15 or, you know, you really only have to look at the top five. After Nagano, we're looking at, at DC and Stipe. And I'm going to be honest, I don't think either of them would beat Curtis Blades. Like, I think for some reason, Curtis Blades has his, his or Francis Nagano has his number. And he's not going to be able to touch Francis Nagano. But I think he's a bad matchup for DC, right? Like, his hands are pretty good. And he probably takes DC down, right? Like, he's way bigger than DC and way more powerful than DC. Younger, more athletic at this point than DC. And, and to be honest, I think he probably takes Stipe down. Not that is a bad wrestler. He's a great wrestler. But I don't know. I still think I'd take Blades in both of those matchups, which puts him at such a bad place in this division, right? Like, he's behind Naganu, a guy who failed for, in his title shot, he failed in getting over that hump in Naganu to get into the title mix, but I really think he's a bad matchup for the guys at the top. Yeah, I, I, it's why I asked it. I agree with you completely. I'm not saying, you know, I go and I put my life savings on him versus DC or him versus Stipe, but I actually like him better stylistic-wise, matchup-wise, just size-wise than I do against him against Naganu, and I'm really getting this feeling that if Naganu does become the champion eventually – 
uh, it's going to become like a, you know, the New York Knicks always being beat by the Pacers, uh, the Bills always losing in the Super Bowl. He's just one of these guys that maybe he could have been champion, but he just existed in an era when Naganu was there and Naganu had his number and styles make fights and Naganu just is better than him. Yeah, I really think the best possible thing that could happen to him is if for some reason in this Stipe versus uh, DC rematch, one of them were to fall out and Naganu wasn't able to get the deal done. Maybe he wasn't ready. Maybe he hasn't done a good enough training camp. Maybe he doesn't want to waste his title shot. That is literally the best case scenario for him, where Blades could jump in, take that fight against either Stipe or DC, and maybe capitalize on it in a way that nobody could imagine he would. Well, that's going to be a very interesting talk for another day. Let's move on. Shane Burgos is a minus-130 favorite. Emmett, uh, Josh Emmett, a very slight dog at plus-110. What do you make of it? I, I love Shane Burgos. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and say here, I, I'm taking him, and I also think that this is a great value play. Even though it's negative-130, and typically you, you know, when we're looking at the negative side of things, especially me when I'm looking at the negative side of things, I don't see a tons and tons of value because I like to play the dogs. But if you look at his record, the dude is freaking six and one in the UFC, and he's looked incredible doing it, right? Like he TKO Charles Rosa, who recently showed off, you know, pretty damn good hands in his last fight. He beat up Cub Swanson. He took it to Makwan Amirakani. His boxing is probably the second best in that tier of the division right now, right? Like I won't put him over Max Holloway. Or I won't put him over Alexander Volkanovsky. But like. For those middle guys in the division, his pure boxing is really freaking good. He just so happens to fall into a category where we're talking down about him right now because he lost to Calvin Cater and got boxed up by Calvin Cater, who is also phenomenally underrated when it comes to boxing. So I think he's phenomenal there. I will say that, you know, if you're considering playing Josh Emmett, I would probably just play Josh Emmett by KO because I don't see a really great path to victory here for him against Shane Burgos unless he takes him down. So I, I like Shane Burgos. I think he can probably get it done with the TKO. I mean, Jeremy Stevens knocked him out. So I, I think Shane Burgos is like a younger, fresher version of Jeremy Stevens at this point. And Emmett's path to success if if he were to win? I, I think he's got to knock him out. Emmett's got big hands, right? Like I, I think he – I mean, he's obviously got the alpha male wrestling too and he's got that whole background – but, like, if you look at the best guys he beat, right, like, he beat Ricardo Lamas, and he beat him with a big KO. He beat Michael Johnson, and he beat him with a big KO. So, like, those types of guys he he needed to knock out. Whereas, like, you know, if you look back at some of his earlier fights, he did wrestle up some guys. But, like, he's now that he's in the top tier, his path to victory against the top tier guys is knock him out. And I just don't see him doing that against Shane Burgos. So, I, for me, I think that's his path, but I think it's a narrow path. Uh, Roxanne Matafari is a minus 140 favorite against Lauren Murphy, who's betting off as a plus 125. Uh, Roxanne in a very interesting place in her career at age 37 now, uh, coming off a win over Macy Barber, where Macy Barber did get injured early on in the fight. Uh, Roxanne is just kind of at this point a 500 fighter. It's win one, lose one, uh, maybe even going back, let's say, to the Invicta days in 2015, 2016, it was lose one, win two, lose one, win two, then come back into the UFC, and it just goes, you know, one-to-one, one-to-one. Who are you taking here, and are we probably nearing the tail end of the Matafari show? 
I actually don't think so. You know, like when we talked to her, you know, she was talking about the fact that her striking keeps getting better each and every day. And it's because she's working with John Wood. The fact that she keeps mixing up her training, I think is giving her a second life and giving her more time at the end of her career here. You know, we don't really have a precedent for when women's careers peak, right? Because we haven't seen those late career runs from those early UFC or early women's MMA veterans, right? Like, We've seen what, you know, what age uh, heavyweights peaks, right? Like a heavyweight peaks in the 40s and, you know, like a lightweight peaks in his, you know, late 20s, early 30s. We don't know where the women peak and we don't know how long that longevity is because we typically haven't seen anybody last that long. And and now we're seeing Roxy do it and she's doing it in ways where she reinvents herself. She added an extra day of strength training during the pandemic because it was something she could do. And, and you know, like her, her game has always been body lock takedowns and really good top control with her jujitsu. So I I think that that's a path to victory here against somebody like Lauren Murphy. I love, you know, I I maybe don't love her at negative 145, but I, I would definitely pick her straight up here because I think that Murphy forces a clinch once in a while anyway, whether she means to or not. And, you know, if she's going to force a clinch, Roxy's probably going to wind up on top of her at least a couple of times. And for me, that's good enough for a unanimous decision. Boom. I love it. Uh, our underdog of the week is Clay Guida at plus 170. Why? Yeah, and, and he's at plus 170, but I will tell you that if you, uh, depending on the book you're at and depending on when you're looking, uh, I've seen him this week as high as plus 200. That means you can get two to one money on him right now, which is, uh, to me, absolutely crazy. Because if you look at Clay Guida's record, the last time Clay Guida lost by knockout, the last time somebody – or Scratch that. Last time he didn't win a decision was all the way back in freaking 2012. That means he, every time it goes to the judges' scorecards, wins. And the reason is is because he's got great pressure, he's got great energy, and he's got great takedowns. It's an absolute steamroll of a thing to be on a judge's scorecards and have those three things, right? So in order to beat him, you got to get him out of there. You got to knock him out, or in a lot of cases, you got to submit him because he's been tapping out once in a while. Bobby Green is not a guy who gets tap outs, right? Like Bobby Green doesn't have tons of submissions on his record. And Bobby Green also hasn't finished anybody. Uh, I, I mean, like if I'm looking back, he finished James Krause in 2013. Other than that, he doesn't have finishes on his record. So we're looking at a guy who you need to finish to win on the scorecards and a guy who isn't getting finishes. So for me, if you're if you're trying to draw a pass to victory here, Bobby Green finishing Clay Guida, low probability. Bobby Green finishing Clay Guida, also low probability. So why not take a guy who's at almost plus two to one money here in Clay Guida? Uh, parlay to play. We're going to put together Curtis Blades at minus 310 and Raquel Pennington at minus 140, and it's going to get you plus odds, plus 125. Hit us up. Why? So I, I told you at the top of the show why, or at the top of the segment, why I love Curtis Blades. I think there's value in negative 310. I don't like playing favorites that big, so I like to mix them in with a parlay. He's clearly going to beat Alexander Volkov, barring something crazy. Meanwhile, Raquel Pennington coming in here at a very slight favorite against Marion Renault. And the crazy thing to me is that when we're looking at somebody like Raquel Pennington, a lot of people are looking, she's like one in three in her last four, right? But those losses are to Jermaine Durandamy, Amanda Nunes, and Holly Holm. And Holly Holm really didn't outstrike her. She like pushed her up against the cage. Meanwhile, she's got a win over Irene Aldana, who a lot of people are talking about being the next challenger for Amanda Nunes. She's fighting Holly Holm next. So, uh, you know, like she's had a good run. I mean, you can go one fight before that and she beat Misha Tate. So like, 
Raquel Pennington is a person who, on record-wise, doesn't look real great. And as a result, the the um, numbers on her have gone way down. Meanwhile, Marianne Renault, I'm not sure why people have got her so close here. She's somebody who just lost to Yana Kunitskaya. She really got dominated by Kat Zingano. Like, she, she won before that against Sarah McMahon, but by, like, triangle choke after being on the bottom. I, I just really don't see what Marianne Renault could do to Raquel Pennington here. That would make me feel that, like, negative, you know, what did I say the numbers were? Or you say the numbers were negative 140. I, I definitely think that's playable with Raquel Pennington. So pair that up, get some plus money on the, the return, and it is definitely a good play. Boom. I love it, and you fans should love it, too. Hit us up on our Twitter, at Top Turtle on the May. We will be tweeting during the show. You can thank us for this advice, or you can blast us if we did you wrong. Uh, Gumby, why don't you wrap things up, get us out of here, tell the people what they need to know. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also want to thank the Mothership Flow Combat for hosting us, as well as our sponsors Maroon Social and Battle Clan Gear. We want to remind you guys to check out our Twitter, at Top Turtle MMA. You can also check out our Instagram, which is now popping as well, at Top Turtle MMA there as well. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we'll see you then.